Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening. If you are a current nonprofit leader, or maybe you hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with leaders in the philanthropic sector who are really on the cutting edge. If you would, do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so that we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. Well, once again, I had a fantastic conversation in this episode with Kelly Chopis, who serves as the president and CEO of the Robbins Foundation in Richmond, Virginia. And she brings great experience, both in terms of her understanding of individual nonprofit leadership but also in the perspective she brings as a funder investing in powerful missions within the Robbins Foundation communities. You know, she also brings the insight into the future of philanthropy and grant making itself as she's in conversations with leaders across the country. And here's why this episode will really help you. Kelly shares exactly what things they're looking for in terms of organizations in which they invest and what they've learned from their existing nonprofit partners. As always in this podcast, I'm looking for practical ideas you can use, and Kelly absolutely delivers. Well, don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 122. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Kelly and I discussed, as well as more information on the great work she's doing at the Robbins Foundation. And speaking of resources, make sure while you're on our website, you connect with us. We're on all of the primary social media platforms. And in fact, if you go to the bottom of the homepage on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, you'll find a number of ways you can connect with us, including scheduling a call. We're not against the good old-fashioned phone call. Let us talk to you about what your nonprofit is up to, maybe ways we can help you with strategic planning, board development, or maybe you and I can discuss your nonprofit leadership journey. We've got some coaching, training, and a unique mastermind program that might be of interest for you. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kelly Chopas. Kelly, thank you for joining me on The Path. I am so excited to be joining you on the path, Patton. This is a dream come true. Well, you're nice to say that, and I'm excited for the conversation. Of course, for our listeners, you have such a great professional journey to share. And of course, you're in the middle of so much in the philanthropic and nonprofit space right now that I know nonprofit leaders listening are going to want to pay close attention. You've got good things to say. And I'm going to start with this question, Kelly. Given the adventures you have dealt with, like everyone else for the last 18 months, what's the greatest challenge or opportunity you face right now in leading the Robbins Foundation? I, that is such an excellent question. It's a perfect one to start because the challenge has been the same for eight years. I actually will celebrate my eight-year anniversary um, this coming Friday Fantastic. with family. And um, Robbins Foundation is a 65-year-old family foundation. My board is primarily family members. And if you can imagine, my, my most important challenge every day is managing up in a way that is meaningful to the family and the rest of the board and managing down and through our community partners 
for whom our contributions and linked partnership is very important, right? And so that is a tension that never goes away on one hand. And on the other hand, it has been extremely exacerbated by the pandemic and by the social justice uprising and everything that has happened with, through, to, and by Richmonders over the last 18 months. That's well put. Let me ask you this. Historically, how would you characterize the Robbins Foundation and the family's philanthropic priorities? Historically, I would say our priorities have always stemmed around education. Our founders were very passionate about their associations with their colleges or their high schools, and they recognized that education was the great equalizer. Such a good way to put it. And, and of course, we'll talk about so many of the programs you support and the foundation supports now have education at their core. Um, let me ask you this question, though, before we dive into some of the philanthropic kind of decisions that you and the foundation have made. How do you personally stay organized, Kelly? A lot of nonprofit leaders are juggling, as you know, more sometimes than they can even handle. I wonder if you found things that have helped you balance kind of the multiple activities on your plate? That's also another excellent question. I would say, just like my nonprofit peers across the funding spectrum, across the nonprofit and service delivery spectrum, that I'm doing the same sort of disorganized dance that they are. I think this pandemic for me personally has been very challenging. I'm a list maker from way back. And there was a point, I think, last March or April 2020 that those lists didn't mean a damn. And <laughs> we just I just felt like I was careening from one horror to the next. And I know because I talked to a lot of our partners across the region on a daily or weekly basis that everybody's feeling the same thing. So I started just leaning into the chaos. Um, I'm a little bit more comfortable in chaos than a lot of people. Right. And at the same time, this was really hard for me too. I've gone back to the lists, the lists, and I've gone back to turning everything off at 7 p.m. You know, there was a time I think that many of us through those first six months were on Zoom calls or other calls from seven in the morning till eight thirty nine at night. And it yep. just was unsustainable. And I realized that this is work for all of us that will never get done. And so it is mandatory and expected and encouraged and welcome to stop at seven so that I can have that break. And so I would encourage your listeners out there to do the same thing that there's, you're just never going to get to everything in a day. The work is never going to go away. We we're in this kind of, philanthropic, community building, community giving space for a reason, but also those issues, those intractable challenges of our time don't go away overnight. Well put. So you unplug no matter what, in essence, is seven o'clock. And uh, I think that's so important because we've talked a lot on this podcast about kind of the mental health ramifications. If you keep plugged in around the clock, which I'm afraid many of our colleagues do, Kelly, uh, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster. And I'm guessing that you've encouraged your team and all that you interact with to kind of offer themselves a similar grace. You are correct. I, I, I am a zealot about it. Yeah, we need more of that. And I think there's hopefully some comfort in those listening to think about the long-term benefit to their nonprofit is not going to be enhanced if they run out of gas before they even get there. Given the stressors 
of uh, particularly the current situations we've had in this country, around the world. Um, I'm curious about the Robbins Foundation approach. I want to read you a quote from your material. It said the Robbins Foundation has said, for every challenge, the foundation has sought opportunities to be responsive to our community and deepen our commitment to partnerships. The issues have not retreated in 2021 and neither have we. What do you mean by that kind of partnership element there? And what were you looking for in particular during this pandemic in evaluating all the requests you get? So partnerships in particular is just about that connection of people and organizations together, moving together in graceful unity towards some shared goal. A lot of our goals were upended in 2020 and 2021. I think we're going to be seeing the lasting impacts and effects of this pandemic on learning loss, on equity issues for decades to come. And so those partnerships then become more important as trusted, I would say, process, not just trusted po process, people and policy, but trusted avenues of moving forward, right? And so that's what it's all about, moving one step forward every day. Sometimes we stand still, sometimes we move back, but we are always looking forward together with our partners and trying to step forward. That's a long-winded way to say, we can't do what we do in a vacuum and we can't do what we do as funders without those service delivery or service provider partners who actually are doing the work on the ground to serve the people that we want to serve in our community. Kelly, you've been also in, related to that a champion, really, of capacity building. Obviously, you see the good work on the ground that you just referred to. And my guess is that you want to help these organizations expand their impact even further. How do you evaluate kind of capacity building opportunities as, as a funder? So things changed, I think, in, in 2020 and 2021. We realized really quickly that many of our nonprofit friends were not only the most important frontline workers in our community, but they were also being decimated more quickly by their boards or executives in terms of being laid off, uh, closing, hours being cut. And so we realized capacity at that very moment and at this very moment continuing is literally the name of the game. If you don't have capacity in terms of a staff person or staff time or staff energy or that ability to execute you've got nothing for the rest of the people who are counting on your services in the community. And so we started talking about capacity different. I think you have a lot of um, neighbors and friends and, and leaders from the Charlotte region on your podcast. While I used to be in Charlotte, now I'm in the Richmond region. And in Richmond, we almost saw 25% of our neighbors lose their jobs or hours overnight wow. last March. And so it was a very unique and perfect storm of awful. And for us, we went to our board immediately and brought them a seven point plan that said, what if we thought about this? And what if we did this with our peer funders? And so some of those things, the what ifs were creating a, a, a direct, more efficient line to grant proposal approvals. Yes. And so we learned to all work more quickly together as a board and as a staff in our organization. But then that seeped out to our peer funder partners across the region. When we started meeting with them, first started to be once every day for about two, three weeks. And then, it, you know, as the pandemic wore on, it became once a week. And there's still a core group of funders who meet 
once every two weeks now for 90 minutes via Zoom and we go through the litany of need that we're seeing, changes that we're seeing, capacity opportunities that we see. And it has been very helpful to have our boards back us in sort of the quick execution of getting dollars into the community. That's fantastic. And you certainly know that our nonprofit friends are delighted that a lot of the hoops that had to be jumped through for many applicants for nonprofit funding are eased, I guess, in this new situation. But Kelly, do you see this continuing? In other words, some of the changes that you've implemented around efficiency, will that continue? Or, you know, once things quote open up, do you see, you know, going back to the way it was? So yes and no. Yes, in that I think we did all learn a lot. I think that in terms of our staff, we realized that we could sort of let go of some of the layers of information that weren't critical to either the success of the project or proposal or need of our nonprofit partners and what our board was able to say, yeah, we don't really need to see the board list at this point or some of those other documentations that maybe now feel superfluous and know in that most of us still are now going back to quarterly meetings as funders. And so I do wonder about that timing issue. We were meeting, my board was meeting once a week for the first two months of the pandemic. Wow. And it they were amazing. We were able to get over $2 million out into the community in six weeks. And it was, I mean, I look back on it and I'm just in awe of what not only our board was able to envision for their hometown and their community, but my staff too, and what they were able to do. And, you know, like everybody else, they're, they're exhausted too. They're getting to that place of burnout because we've been doing so much that was, okay, well, we've just got to let go of that process. We got to let go of some of that. Some of that process is important to slow the timing down because funders don't have a lot of capacity either, as you well know, we don't have the biggest staffs or the biggest ability to turn around things quickly Um, as well. I mean, there are many members of our funders group who are one and two people shops and they're giving away five, six million dollars a year. That's a lot. And and, yeah, and they can't be expected to maintain the pace that so many of you generously offered of time, resources, and energy. But it sounds like though that some efficiencies may be gained, even if we can't maintain that weekly pace that funders are being responsive. and, And hopefully that's a good sign for everybody going forward. Yeah, I do think the world has changed and that philanthropy will change with it. Um, And I do think our nonprofit partners have had to change and they are going to be coming to us with different kinds of proposals now, capacity, general operating. I think what we saw in the Richmond region was very much in line with what my peers saw across the country, which is that nonprofits just started serving people, more people, hundreds and thousands more people across the board um, without the funding. And they just did it. So we took it upon ourselves to just fund it, right? Yes. And not worry about, um, you know, the, we did all the due diligence required, but we didn't worry about the hoops that we had created that were constructs, I think, of big philanthropy. Love it. And, and uh, that's great to hear. In fact, let me ask you another hoop that many of our nonprofit leader colleagues ask, and I'm sure you get this question because they do want capacity building initiatives or investment. What exactly does that look like? I mean, are you open more, Kelly, to 
proposals that include staffing support financially, or is it technology? What are some examples of you seeing where nonprofits make a good case for capacity building and you and the Robbins Foundation are willing to help fund it? So the case is all of those things. It's technology, it's staff. I mean, really what we saw was staffing was the biggest one is many of our nonprofit partners have had to change their staffing models either. And now they're all having to increase and ramp up. And so to be able to fund a staff person or part of a staff person's time is absolutely an important piece of what funders are going to have to do over the next, I would say next two, three years. So that's one of it for us. I would say we want to do fundraising help. We want to do grant um, sort of grant writing if they need to find a consultant that can help with that, if they need to find some board training. Like we are open to all of it in the framework of what we want to fund, which is education and you know community building. So we're pretty flexible. I mean, these the partnerships we have are because we trust that the partners we have know what their business is. They know how to get to the the goals of their business. Yeah. And I love it. And you, of course, are evidence of that in the Robbins Foundation as being a listener to the community serve and the nonprofits you serve. And so I hope that uh, other nonprofit leaders listening in whatever community they reside will have these kind of conversations. Because I hope, and I bet Kelly, you know, nationally, there are an increasing amount, I guess, that share your philosophy of we need to invest in these organizations where they most need it. But a question I have for you is of, do you find yourself with organizations you know are vital, but are simply going to struggle in the long term? Do you find yourself considering more opportunities for merging or alliance building? Or how does the Robbins Foundation look at that sometimes tricky dynamic of nonprofits that maybe won't survive? That is an actually a great point about where some of us find ourselves now in our communities. I would say we are open to providing the support or help or thought leadership or philanthropic strategy to any of our partners who are considering changing the game because the game has been changed for them, right? And so anybody who comes to us and says, hey, we, you've been funding us for 10 years in this and we realize and recognize because of the pandemic, we're better suited if we align with this group and we're talking about a formal partnership or a formal structure to maybe in five years merge together or align more directly in service, we would be open to that. I would say my board has always been innovative that way and thinking about this community as a larger pie and as a larger sort of opportunity for this foundation to do its good work. So I would say this is happening across the country. And it's not really because this is in our wheelhouse. We have had to learn this um, on the fly through the pandemic because of what happened to the nonprofit sector and our partners who not only were hurting because they were trying to do more and serve more people, but they were doing it with less and less resources too, for the most part. And so we have to be flexible. We have to be courageous as funders and think differently about the way we fund what we fund and how we fund. Yeah, I'd uh, love to hear your description. And of course, I'm curious too about just the mechanics of how you and your team operate. Maybe you could speak to that. Assuming an organization in the Richmond area is eligible and they've done their homework and they see there's an emission alignment. I mean, do you like to have those conversations early in the game or what? what is the kind of due diligence at a high level that you want nonprofit partners to go through in terms of seeing if there really is a partnership possible? 
So they're actually, we, let me go back. We have created a team at the Robbins Foundation that is a different approach to the typical program officer. And quite frankly, most of my peers in the community uh, have funding and program teams that approach the work the same way, which is we are listening first. We are engaging and supporting and learning at the same time. We're not prescribing our mission on any of our organizations. What we're doing is saying, let us help you be the best version of who you can be. And whatever form that looks like, whether it be actual financial contribution, thought leadership, us connecting you or referring you to the kind of consultant you may need or big thinker, um, that's what we want to do. And so I would say what we're going to be facing over the next six months is more of that level setting, right? Because the world has changed and we're still trying to catch up to what the pandemic has wrought in a way. I know that sounds really depressing. Now, when I say it, I'm like, wow, we, we are living in extraordinary times in, in philanthropy and in the nonprofit world of service provision. Extraordinary times. Uh, indeed. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, something that we hopefully won't have to address again in our lifetimes. It's that significant. But to your credit, even before the pandemic, you and the foundation were listening to the challenges that nonprofit faced in your community. In fact, there was a, what it was an illuminating perspectives report. I think Kelly, that you all put together before the pandemic and maybe that led to some of your partnership with network for good, but could you speak to that as to some of the challenges you saw even then and why network for good has helped maybe address some of them? Yes. I'd love to talk about network for good. I am an evangelist for that program, but let me first go back to that report. You, you talked about that report was an evaluation we did after five years of our flagship funding program called the community innovation grant. And it was the pandemic has stopped it sadly, but it, the community innovation grant was an idea that we had as a board and as a staff to put a big big grant out there for an intractable problem, a new solution to an old problem kind of thing. That was the tagline. Think differently, think bigger, $500,000 for whatever the community wanted to come up with. It had just a few caveats. We wanted there to be partnership between organizations. We wanted it to address um, an issue that has long stymied leaders and it could be anything. And so that report was an evaluation of the first several years of winners and top 10 people. And what we heard from them in terms of, of their experience of the program was one, it didn't take into consideration the capacity they needed to go for that kind of money or that kind of grant. It's a very intricate application process. There were site visits, then we brought in the board for the third round. And then finally, the we, you know, we called it from whatever the sum of applicants was through a top 20, through a top 10, then to a top five that the board committee saw. And then the final, the board committee chose the final two that went to the board for declaring the winner, voting and approving the winner of this grant process. And so I think what we learned is capacity continues to be the issue. Yep. And that informed how the team started then going out and looking into the community and the wider community being the national community saying, is there something out there working in another place that could work in Richmond? And we found this great program called Network for Good. 
and their Jumpstart program. And their Jumpstart program is a very intensive development, advancement, fundraising cohort of 15 organizations that we picked um, based on our partners and whatever the Network for Good criteria was. And they have their own fundraising software that Network for Good provides. They have a consultant, almost like this sounds strange, but like a Weight Watchers consultant. You know how Weight Watchers always yeah, had yeah. that partner. Right. They had each organization had their own person that walked with them along the journey through the cohort. And the cohort was a year. Our first year, I think our investment in Network for Good, we partnered with a Chicago foundation that actually houses Network for Good in their area, the Chicago Community Foundation. Our first year, I want to say our investment was about $83,000. Our first cohort of mostly, by the way, BIPOC-led organizations, grassroots organizations, smaller than Network for Good was used to, raised $1.6 or $1.7 million in a pandemic patent. Wow. This blew everyone away because, first of all, we pushed hard and said, Grassroots organizations need this. They might not be ready the way you think they are, Network for Good, but these are our partners. We know them. We know these people. We know the impact they could have. So they sort of massage the rules for us. Right. You know, right. lots of people, we used our funder privilege, you know, when, but, when uh, funders- For a good paid. purpose. Yeah, we did. We sort of leaned into our privilege at that point. But that money that they raised has continued to bear fruit because it was only through nine months of the of the, the cohort. So it's probably up over $2 million for that first cohort. We launched a second cohort a couple of months ago and they're on the same journey, right? And so that we learned is also a challenge across the country and across many cities, just like Richmond, right? Development professionals are burned out. They're leaving the field. I continue to worry about development directors, you know, as an old development director myself and a fundraiser, you know, I love fundraising. I'm prolific in terms of asking anybody for money, have no problem with it. <laughs> and I worry about the what's what's in the pipeline, which doesn't seem to be a lot right now. Well, so yeah. this program, I think, was able to share the love of fundraising with these organizations who then were able to say, oh, this is helpful. This kind of not just handholding, but absolute um, data evidence-based solutions is helping my business. And so for us, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I, I'm really looking forward to what the second cohort do, does, and I'm, I'm sure there will be a third cohort. This is important stuff. We've got to help people understand how to fundraise again, why it's important to continue to ask for money, why it's important to engage your donors and steward people along a process of supporting you. Love it. And certainly consistent with your philosophy of investing in capacity building. What a wonderful community capacity building initiative that represents. And when you're putting 80 to 100 grand and you're generating 2 million out of these cohorts, that is huge. And certainly a tribute to you and the Robbins Foundation for doing that kind of thing. In fact, you had another creative investment, in my opinion, with uh, Catch a Fire. Talk about what that is and how that might impact the landscape for your philanthropic community. So we've talked a lot about the fact that I'm connected on a national level to different groups and partners, and so is my team, and so is my board. And we were at a 
conversation, let's just say via Zoom, uh, about two years ago at a conference and learned about this group, Catch a Fire. And Catch a Fire is, is quite frankly, a matchmaker between volunteers who are highly skilled in particular niche um, sectors and nonprofits who need that volunteer skill. So if you're a web developer, if you're a graphic designer, if you are a fundraising professional or you write, you're a copywriter, you would go up and in fact, Patton, I'm going to ask you to go on catchafire.org sure. and just maybe you should sign up as a volunteer. And then we would find an organization based in their database to link you together. So what we did and what we did is our donation is, I think it's also $100,000. We're using it as program research because we're testing it at this point. We are able to have 100 organizations sign up for Catch a Fire and be part of this membership organization for one year. Now they can go back to the well of Catch a Fire and find a volunteer for anything in kind that is impactful to them. It could be a CFO. It could be, as I mentioned, a fundraising or development plan. It could be, I need graphic design for this brochure. It could be, I need a new logo, whatever it is. Um, we feel like that will be a really big boon for our nonprofit partners who are struggling still to keep up with pandemic-related issues, opportunities, and threats to their own organizations. We join, I want to say there are three or four other community foundations and private foundations in Virginia that have launched their own Catch a Fire partnerships. Right. So now we're starting to see, um, I think, some critical mass that maybe these organizations might link up, leverage each other, and be able to find whatever they need um, for their own capacity in any of these areas. So that's that's one of the things that we looked outside of Richmond to find. Right. And I would say, I'll let you know more in a couple of months, but from what we've seen online that others have done, it could be an amazing opportunity just to get that pinpointed targeted expertise to our, our, you know, base of nonprofit partners who don't necessarily need to have the volunteer right here in the region. It could be somebody from California. That's what I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Obviously the technology, we, the silver lining of the pandemic has allowed everyone to be more comfortable because I was going to ask you, Kelly, can you scale up or down catch a fire or do you need to have kind of a critical mass in your community to have that kind of volunteer pool or can you expand it into the rural communities as well? So we, we did a choice and asked our partners to opt in after they looked at it. We did a session, an information session where they were able to see the program. And then we now need to go through and, and choose who they are. But it's mostly people from this region. But the reality is there are many nonprofit partners or funding partners across the country who partner with um, Catch a Fire Lake. I want to say Target, maybe. There are a couple corporations corporations that do it as well. But the reality is it's people like you and me who maybe don't feel like we are great at going to a food bank or we're not great um, being on a board because we might not have time. But if I'm sitting at my computer, I can certainly write a development brochure exactly. or I can help you with a logo or you can help somebody with, you know, podcast training. I don't know. Whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it takes advantage of kind of the access virtually to talent. And and that's what intrigues me. And of course, I want to lift this up in our show notes because I think, and you've mentioned earlier, the talent 
uh, drain in the nonprofit sector. You see there in Richmond, of course, we've both seen it everywhere. But I wonder if this is an opportunity, again, for these, some of these rural nonprofits. I'm working in several across eastern North Carolina, for example, and that is a significant issue, you know, access to the talent they need. And you're creating, I guess, a conduit for that. And is that among the most, you mentioned it earlier, but I guess that talent drain, is that among the things that most concern you as you look at the nonprofit sector right now? Absolutely. And you're seeing talent drain across sectors, right? You're seeing restaurant workers who are saying, I'm not going back. It's not worth it to me. I'm going to get a job in another field. I'm worried that those people in the nonprofit sector who had to leave either because of job loss, cutting hours, or whatever the nonprofits had to do to stay open, will go find jobs in another sector. Because as you know, nonprofit skills are extremely transferable. Yep. Yeah, I'm very concerned about the drain. I'm very concerned about, you know, government just can't handle some of the biggest problems on the ground the way a nonprofit can. Yeah, I, well, I was going to ask you about some of the policy issues that you're discussing at the highest levels on a national basis. Um, been in among the kind of policy or philosophy questions, I've had conversations with uh, funding leaders like you is, of course, the, the disproportionate funding to nonprofits led by minority or BIPAC leaders. Uh, certainly, your Network for Good cohort represents, I guess, where you're trying to do even more to invest in that community. But maybe speak to that. What the Robbins Foundation, how has it addressed that question of, hey, how come you know there's a disproportionate funding to white-led nonprofits versus those led by persons of color? So the the inequity, I think, in the funding or the disproportionate approvals, a lot of it has to do with access, right? And so access to the what is always considered the not so very transparent process of foundations, right? And the lack of access by most people to see behind the veil of how, how do you get in, right? And so my team and my board in particular have been really vocal across our region and deep in community at the grassroots level, just meeting people, getting to know people, making sure people have relationships with us because then you have access, right? And then that access, I think for us in particular and our whole funding community has very much changed over the last five years, I would say, to focus on this, Uh, in a new way, because Richmond is a flashpoint. We are at the fulcrum of many issues of equity in terms of racial justice, I would say social justice, education, transportation, housing, you name it. We're here because of what's happened over the last 402 years in our exact community. And to be able to address that will take more than a grant cycle. Right. So we are very, I I would say we are very top of mind about connecting with organizations that are serving the people that we say we want to serve. Right. And so this group that meets in Richmond for the last eight years, it's called the African-American Nonprofit Leaders. Yep. Executive directors of some of the biggest, smallest, most medium-sized organizations that do all the great work in this community have been meeting for eight years and they asked us to go on a learning journey as the funders group last at the end of last year. And we spent once a month, four hours a month learning about their experiences 
as leaders of color and as leaders of color coming to primarily white philanthropy and yep. what that meant for them and what it meant for not only their access, but their opportunity and the potential of their own leadership to lead their organizations into the promise that it was supposed to have in our community. And it was a very eye-opening opportunity for us. And I immediately went back and asked my team to say, do we have any of that data in our database? Do we know what percentage of BIPOC-led organizations we fund? And BIPOC, for your leaders who might not know it or your listeners, is um, leaders of color, basically. Um, so we found that we had about 36, 37% of our funding went to leaders of color, which I- Better than most, right? I would say. I was impressed by it. I thought, okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I expected it to be zero or I expected it to be 50%, but at least we have a baseline. I then shared it with that group of African-American nonprofit leaders. We call them the AANL. And yep. I shared it with my small funders group. And I think everybody is doing that on their own as well. And that we'll come together by the end of 2021 and talk about it as funders and say, what can we do? Our community foundation has been such a great leader on this issue in terms of finding a way to bring the inequity of leadership and opportunity to the forefront for the community. And they are doing quite a bit, as you would expect, most community foundations are the leaders in their communities of creating, you know, the black led giving studies. They have um, affinity groups that um, create, you know, almost like Valeda Fullwood's doing, right? So we have one for men, one for women of color, and um, now we have one for young gay people. So yep. these giving groups and giving circles are becoming very powerful ways to belong and to be, um, I would say, accepted in a way to create new access and opportunity. Yeah, it's well put. And of course, as we record this in the end of August of 2021, Black Philanthropy Month, in fact, I had Valeda Fullwood on the podcast to talk about some of the, what exactly you are mentioning. And there's progress. Uh, I think we both would agree. But of course, there's much to do. And Kelly, you're involved at the national level on the board for organizations like the National Center for Family Philanthropy. I mean, are these conversations happening at the national level? Or how would you describe some of the headlines when you talk to colleagues across the country? These conversations are happening everywhere across the country. They're happening in living rooms. They're happening in boardrooms. They're happening at organization community resource centers. I mean, this is the topic over the last 18 months, right? Because what we saw from the pandemic is that it exacerbated inequity for quite a few of our neighbors. And I would say we don't have an answer yet. We don't know how to approach it as philanthropy, as a sector. And I don't think that one size fits all. Certainly what's happening in Richmond and Virginia, right? The seat of the Confederacy is much different than what's happening in San Francisco, California, or Taos, New Mexico, or quite frankly, even Louisiana right now. Yeah. And look at what weather is doing today as another great equalizer, right? I mean, this, this hurricane knows no equity issues, right? It's just flattening everybody. And so we have to balance all of those very complicated subjects together and move forward with love, I hope. Well put. I'm trying to do anyway. 
Uh, absolutely well put in, in a teaser for a book that you may recommend later on this podcast, <laughs> but I'm not going to give it away yet because I still have a couple questions for you, Kelly. One, that's a fantastic description. And again, I'm delighted to have you among several national funders I'm speaking with on this podcast to get that perspective and to hear this collective voice around some of these issues of philanthropy and inequity and philanthropy and so forth. Let me ask you to shift gears because you and I have both been on the other side of the fence as fundraisers. The listeners right now are trying to sharpen their case to approach funders like you. And maybe I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and get your advice for a nonprofit leader listening who wants to be more effective in asking for money. So now that you're on the funder side, Kelly, what are you looking for when you evaluate a nonprofit organization? And maybe I could start with the leadership question. Is that a criteria that you look closely at when you and your team and your board evaluate? And what are some characteristics you need to see? This this is so old school. And I feel like I'm dating you and me when I say this, but people give to people, right? Yep. And a foundation is just a group of people giving to another group of people. And I would say the most important thing for me and my team and my board is a relationship. And so that leadership on the nonprofit partner side is really important. I like to have deep relationships with our our team, right? Our the team of partners that we have in our community. And it's important because when you have a trusted partnership, there are things beyond the programmatic that can happen. We yep. are not going to solve our way out of any of these problems with programmatic funding. It's just not going to happen. But to have the brain trust at a table together talking about deeper issues besides a particular program usually can spark some sort of innovation or creative approach or a brainstorm or another leveraging of another connection. And so I would say to those listeners who are in development or, or executive directors, that relationship with the foundation team is really important. We ask for it for a reason, and it's because it is people giving to people at the end of the day. Yeah, I love that. And as much as I need to have a, a coherent and well thought out written proposal, whatever requirements you have, whether it's online or in good old fashioned paper, the relationship's key. How would you comment on both my staff and my board? Are, are, are you looking at my board? What, what are some of the characteristics at that level that you want to see as a funder? I'm looking at your staff and I'm looking at your staff experience because one of the things I want to know is is there an opportunity an opportunity for me to help you with capacity to get you the right staff people? Yep. And I'm not saying capacity is even something that we were looking at 18 months ago. It just wasn't. We were very program focused, very project based, but now we know the world's changed. And our I don't even think our our nonprofit peers are going to come to us with program requests anymore because they've had to throw everything up in the air and say, okay, in order to serve, we're just going to serve. We're not going to serve it through these sort of tight, obscure little program guidelines. We're not doing that anymore. We're just doing this. So I would say, yeah, I want to look at your staff because I want to see the leadership capabilities that you have and the experience. Your board is important only because I want to make sure that you have that fiduciary responsibility handled, that you have the governance of your vision and your strategy handled. I don't really look at who's on your board. I don't think that's important anymore because boards are volunteers of caring people just like you and me. 
So I'm delighted to see board members, but I don't, I don't make a big deal of having to know them. I think that might be important to other funders or maybe some boards. Yeah. Sometimes my board is interested in the board because of who's, who's serving on it, but they don't make a decision based on that. Uh, you had two questions there related. Do you, do you want to see the diversity of my board? And do you want to see the level of giving from my board? How do those factors impact your analysis? So one of the things we actually learned from our illuminating perspectives report was that that question about my board needs to be giving at 100% seemed to be unfair and a little biased. And we took that feedback very carefully back to our board and shared why funders were struggling with that because it goes to your first point, the diversity of your board is more important. If you have members of your board who happen to be also participants in your program, yep. we think that makes a much stronger board than having that participant give a thousand dollars or some very amount. Right. And so I think this is all hard fought knowledge that we learn the hard way, right? Because, you know, we're just trying to think of ways to say no. And I think what we've learned in the pandemic is the opposite. Let's try to find a way to say yes. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because it is, and you know, it. it's a tried and kind of true rule that, well, we got to have hundred percent board giving. And so that does that create its own kind of problems or unintended consequence. And so it sounds like you're willing to, you know, look at the diverse nature or the, I guess the representative voices on the board. Right. And is that something Kelly you're saying that literally. That's it. That's exactly it. It's not the diversity of your board. We're expecting it's 2021 that you have a diverse board, but do you have an inclusive board, which embraces different perspectives lived experiences, that's where the money is, right? That is where the proof is in the pudding. Let me think of another cliche I can say, right? (laughs) That is where the magic is, right? If you have people on your board and on your staff who understand what the mission is on a very deeply personal level, then you're going to be successful and we're going to want to be part of that success and we're going to want to help you get there. So the arbitrariness I think of the way we make funding decisions is slowly but surely ebbing away because of this pandemic and social justice uprising and everything that happened over the last, you know, 18 months in this community and others. That's what I'm seeing anyway, when I talk to my peers across um, the country and believe me, I have support groups all over the country because this has been hard on us too. I mean, there's a lot of guilt that um, many of my peers have felt over the last 18 months because we did have jobs um, and our boards did have their jobs. And we just were trying to manage the pain and the hurt that we were seeing from long-term partners on a minute by minute basis for, I don't know, it was a good year. and, And it's encouraging to hear one, the empathy, that you articulate from your colleagues and yourself and the fact that you're open to, and maybe this is again, a silver lining to this kind of stress we've had over the last 18 months that funders like you are revisiting some of these things and considering new approaches, not that you're not going to do your due diligence and assure that where the money goes is indeed where it needs to go. Um, But I'm just delighted to see that. And I guess I have one more question for you along those lines, Kelly, that a lot of, our nonprofit 
colleagues wonder about is they know you want to see data. You want to see evidence of our progress, but that in of itself requires an investment of time and personnel and resources. So how do you juggle that? You know, you want to see evidence, but if I'm a relatively new but impactful nonprofit in the community, maybe I just don't have kind of the research capabilities or things like that. Is that something you've had to wrestle with? We have learned, I think, also the hard way that we need to fund that. We can't expect that to happen right. just with our grant and that we need to, to create a separate process for that. I think the whole funding community is struggling with data and evidence at this point because the pandemic upended so much. At this point, it's about survival, not only of our nonprofit partners who are, you know, they need to continue their work, right? There are many in each community across the country that are the most important organizations that serve the most people or the, the most vulnerable and must continue. There's also the challenge that is it really our place to say we need to have this data? I mean, these social challenges and issues are really hard to like sort of you know loop into one little spreadsheet. Exactly. We, we can't really measure impact. I mean, we talk about a two-generation approach in Richmond quite a bit, not just at the Robbins Foundation board and staff level, but our peers as well. This is these are intractable problems for a reason. Right. If this was easy, anybody could do it. And so we are really rethinking data and evidence based approaches by just sort of limiting to if our friends, by the way, at the YWCA say this is an evidence based approach for educating you know, toddlers. OK, that's different than me saying to you, I want you to prove to me that you you made a difference in impacting poverty by you know me giving you money for your food bank. Yeah. It's really complicated, and I think that there maybe have been some there may have been some hubris on the part of foundations and grant makers, right? We're not in the trenches, but we were in the trenches these last eighteen months with our partners, and I think what we saw horrified us. And the way we present ourselves and show up maybe was was a big wake up call. Excellent. Uh, yeah, can't tell you how much I appreciate that. The common sense, frankly, approach. Kelly, that you are, are illustrating is something, again, that maybe there is a positive uh, outcome to all that we have uh, been through. And again, grateful for your perspective on all of these issues. I'll kind of finish with one, one somewhat loaded question, given what you and I are talking about. Yes. You know, if some, if I'm somebody just yes to whatever you're going to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Make it easier. It won't be loaded, right? If you just shoot it down. Um, but no, it's someone who wants to get into nonprofit leadership. You know, given the stress of the last 18 months, if somebody approaches you right now, Kellen says, you know what, I want to get into nonprofit leadership. More and more coming out of college, I think, thinking about it. Also, I'm running into folks that are thinking about it, you know, what I'd call a lateral move. I'm getting out of the corporate sector. I want to work nonprofit. But how would you respond to somebody who's interested in nonprofit leadership? I would say two things. One, yes, we need you. Two, Create your own um, advisory board of friends and people across sectors to keep you sane and keep you motivated and going forward because it is hard work and it's made unnecessarily harder by what we're experiencing in this pandemic. You know, the, the fight for, for funding, the fight to keep qualified staff when you can't pay quite a bit, um, all of it. And I would say we need, we need new thought leaders. We need new eyes, fresh perspective. Yes. Hell yes. 
uh, that that may become the quote on the banner for this episode. So thank you, Kelly, for that and for lifting up something. I, I, I've got a couple of mastermind groups going, and one of the things we talk about is exactly what you said: building that strong personal board of directors. And it sounds like you can attest to that, that it is going to be something you may need for your sanity in any profession, but particularly in the nonprofit one. Absolutely. I, I have one. I have two. I might even have three. Wait. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know this sounds like I'm crazy, but yes. Um, no, no you're, it, it's really you're proving important. the point. You're proving no, I am the point. proving the point. I, you're right. This is This is hard work on both sides of the table. Um, someday we will talk about it as we are um, not on opposite sides of the table. Someday we're going to come up with new language to talk about the hand in glove partnership between funders and their nonprofit partners. And I can't wait for that day to come. Well, and uh, if you'll consider it, well, you'll be back on this podcast talking about exactly that. So Kelly, uh, you have provided a goldmine of advice for nonprofit leaders and philanthropic leaders and all of which are we're all in it for the right reasons, I think, but we need to continue to do better. And I appreciate you and the Robbins Foundation's ability to be champions for this. If I can ask you for one parting gift, as you know, every guest, I'm offering them this uh, request. Uh, what's a book that's been meaningful to you that you might recommend to our listeners? I am so delighted to recommend this book. It's called Love as a Business Strategy, Resilience, Belonging, and Success and it has changed a lot for me over the last month that I've been reading it. And I'd encourage everybody to go back to the beginning, which is about our connection as human beings, our love for humanity, our love for one another. And we have to go back and start there and strengthen all that. Can't wait to lift that up, Kelly. That sounds like one I need to check out myself and add it to the PMA library. Thank you for uh, doing just that. And where can people go to find out more about you and the great work you're doing? at the Robbins Foundation. So feel free to tell your listeners to click on our website, which is www.robbinsfdn.org. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Kay Chopis. Awesome. Kelly, thank you again for joining me on the path. Thanks. It's been a great path and a journey with you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Kelly as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can not only guide your personal professional journey, but also enhance your nonprofit's philanthropic strategy and hopefully give you some ideas that will allow you to better partner with funders like the Robbins Foundation in your community. Of course, don't forget to check out the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. In fact, you need to check out our new podcast page, we have dialed it up a notch. Let me know what you think. You will see added features around each episode. And in particular, check out Kelly's episode. Again, number 122. You can learn more about her and the great things she's doing through the Robbins Foundation. And some of those resources she and I discussed are also linked there for your convenience. As always, please share this episode with somebody else on the path. I bet you know someone that is trying to improve their fundraising skills and understanding of the philanthropic community. This is a good episode to share. And if you haven't already, of course, you can subscribe by also going to our podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. 
Thank you again for listening to this episode. And in fact, if you liked it, you might want to check out some of the other recent conversations I've had with national funding leaders. We're going to put them all together into a package so you can put them together in a way that may be even more meaningful. I'm thinking about recent conversations with Charles Thomas and Rhett Mabry, Tom Lawrence, Phil Buchanan, uh, some great conversations that as a collective listening experience, you'll really have a good feel for the national philanthropic scene. Stay tuned for that. As always, thanks for what you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.